Welcome to another Books and Culture podcast with Books and Culture's editor, John Wilson. I'm Stan Guthrie. In this podcast, John, we have a new book called I Beg to Differ, Navigating Difficult Conversations with Truth and Love by Tim Muehlhoff. First, Stan, I want to say that I think the subject of this book is very important. And even though I'm going to say some things that are negative about the book as well as positive, I would strongly encourage our readers to take a look at it. Again, I think before you and I were on the air, you joked and said, looks like a book I could use right now. Well, I think we all feel that way. And I think that this is a book, whether you're entirely on the wavelength of Tim Uloff or not, he's very much worth listening to and differing with, perhaps, on some points. He's a professor of communication at Biola. If you want to get a flavor of him, you could do what I did and listen to several talks that are available on YouTube. There's a ton of his talks in various settings, chapels, lectures. You could spend days listening to him. And he's very gifted. He's witty. I think in some ways he's a better speaker than he is a writer. Not that the book is unclear or anything like that, but his personal presence has much more humor. The book, to my mind, and this is partly just who I am and my own taste and so on, comes off as a bit platitudinous, even though there's a lot of wisdom in it. And it also has some language that for a lot of people is, they're as much at home with it as I'm at home with the language of baseball. So it's not necessarily that he's doing something wrong. I'm just putting up a little warning flag so that when someone hears this podcast and says, oh, well, you know, John Wilson said I should look at this book. And then they get this book and they start opening it and they find this page that says relational transgressions, privileging the relationship, instruction management, lack of phatic communication, all that sort of thing. There's nothing wrong with that kind of analysis, that kind of discourse. It's just something that is not my cup of tea. Also, there's a danger. I'm saying I read this book, even though in some ways it's not in my dialect, so to speak. That makes it sound like I'm flattering myself, like I'm, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I can read this book even though it's not completely my cup of tea and I can take what's good from it. That points to the kind of problem that makes a book like this so pertinent because our communication, if you will, our talking with one another, our disagreement is loaded with potential minefields. And it's very easy, for instance, someone can say, well, what I think we need more of in, is humility. You know, We need more humility. But it turns out that what they mean by that, and he actually addresses that, is they don't really want the cost of confrontation. Mm. And there's a very good passage where he describes the notion of common ground and how there are some misunderstandings about what we're looking for when we're looking for common ground. And he says, as Christians who are often labeled arrogant, judgmental, and intolerant, we find that it feels good to surprise people and focus on similarities. Once those areas of agreement are cultivated, we are hesitant to jeopardize the positive climate by challenging others. 
This is not the type of common ground advocated in this third step that he's talking about. Christian author and professor Daniel Taylor rightly notes that common ground is not the flaccid everybody is right of flabby relativism. The goal is not niceness or pseudo-unanimity. While cultivating areas of agreement is crucial to our overall strategy, it cannot be an end in itself. As we shall see, common ground is the place from which we seek to address areas of disagreement. I think mm. that's very wise, and it's characteristic that on point after point, I think that there is hard-won wisdom in this book. And one of the things that he brings to it is, on the one hand, he's a scholar of communication, all right, and you can see that in some of the jargon. On the other hand, he has tremendous practical experience, he and his wife both, working with couples, for instance. So one section has to do with what happens, a case study in the book, when couples disagree on finances. So it's not just disagreement in the sense of disagreement about homosexuality or other large social issues. It can be disagreement with your husband or wife over your finances. Sure, There's a lot of wisdom that runs throughout the book. There are points where, as I said, I might beg <laughs> to differ. And let me give one example. One of the questions that he's posing in a series of you know, things you can ask yourself, you know, when you're having a disagreement, and why does this person hold this belief? All right. So you know, you and I disagree, and I'm supposed to try to figure out why you hold this belief. That sounds good. And he says, having served as mediators in thousands of difficult cases, the scholars at the Harvard Negotiation Project argue that when discussing differences, people tend to trade only conclusions, not how the different parties arrived at their conclusions. Mm. In the heat of the moment, we give the other person the bottom line of our convictions, not the backstory of how those convictions develop. During our conversations, we need to resist the urge to explain why we think the other person's position will lead to death. Rather, we need to first understand why this way seems right to him or her. Psychologist and gender scholar Carol Gilligan states, you cannot take a life out of history. What a person believes is deeply entwined with his or her personal and social history. The second step of our strategy is to ask, why does this person hold this belief? The goal is to understand why a person has embraced convictions or behaviors that we find unreasonable or offensive. Well, you know, that sounds really good in some ways, but I also think there's some serious problems with it, which would require for adequate analysis a lot more time than we have. But let me just sketch two areas of concern. The first, which I really can't go into detail about at all, is that I think that it falsely assumes that we can determine that that it's in our power. And someone just this morning on Twitter asked me, John Stark from the Gospel Coalition, asked about good accounts of the conversion of W.H. Auden and T.S. Eliot. I responded briefly, and I pointed him to Alan Jacobs on Auden. What I was thinking, and what I want to talk more about with John, is it made me think how difficult it is very often to find good accounts of the conversion of a writer, let's say, mm -hmm. and how often those are contested and how if we look at our own life, how we arrive at certain beliefs, it's often not a simple matter to discern. But beyond that, I think that there are some real risks when you put emphasis on how someone arrived at a belief as opposed to just whether it's true or not. Now, of course, he's not wanting to do that <laughs> at all. You can see that from what we've already said. 
But in practice, one of the biggest problems in contemporary disagreement, and it's not just in contemporary disagreement, but it's particularly intensified even in my lifetime, partly just recently by social media and so on, is a tendency in disagreement to assume that you know the motives of the person you're disagreeing with and that those motives are bad. I've seen exactly the same dynamic play out in the debate among Christians about creation and evolution. Philip Johnson, I had conversations with him in which we had a friendly argument about this where he would say that Christian scientists who accepted the broad evolutionary account without at all thinking that it was unguided, without thinking it just happened, because obviously all Christians in one sense are creationists, he would attribute terrible motives to them. They were cowardly. They were afraid that they wouldn't be respected by their peers. They would be a laughingstock. They just wanted to get along. In his view, they were craven and intellectually dishonest. And then on the other hand, some of those same people who I was defending to him saying, look, whether you agree with them or not, your fellow Christians, you both share a belief in, that God is ultimately the creator. You should be able to disagree and yet acknowledge that common ground. You looked on the other side, and some of those Christians who do accept the findings of evolutionary science within certain limits when it doesn't transgress what science can actually tell us, sure. they would turn around and mock and pillory and attribute bad motives to those on the other side. It seems to me that this whole business of, you know, let's figure out how you, like, Stan, how did you get, how how did you, there are real pitfalls there. I'm not saying that in certain circumstances, for certain purposes, an understanding with a lot of humility, because it's not something, we don't even know why we ourselves arrived at things a lot of times. You know, I could be wrong. But I don't think that Tim is completely thinking out the implications and the way that this sort of attitude plays out in disagreement. But as I say, that's an inadequate sketching of something that we need to explore much more fully. But that's part of the reason why I would recommend this book to our readers as a source of wisdom, but also of fruitful disagreement.